So we are in week four of a sermon series called Come Home. And uh, essentially what we're doing is we're taking a look, and Steve mentioned this earlier, we're taking a look at what are commonly referred to as the 12 minor prophets. And as Steve mentioned, they're not minor because they're unimportant. They're minor simply because they're shorter than the other prophetic books. And so they're grouped together at the end of the Old Testament. And so over the last few weeks, we've looked at the book of Malachi. We've looked at the book of Habakkuk. We've looked at the book of Jonah. And today, as you can tell from a lot of the verses we've been using in Scripture, we're going to be looking at the book of Micah. And so the book of Micah was written by a man named Micah. You guys are sharp. I don't care what your parents say about you. You guys are sharp. Anyway, he was from a town called Morasheth, which was about 25 miles to the southwest of Jerusalem. And so his hometown was sort of this agricultural, poor, and it was really far from the political centers of both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of, uh, of Judah. And so he was a long way away from any of the political stuff that was going on. He was a contemporary of some other prophets. He was a contemporary of Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea. And his prophetic ministry spanned the rule of several different, several different kings of Judah, uh, really sort of from 737 BC to 696 BC. And so we read about these kings in Micah 1.1. And so we're going to put that up on the screen here just in a second. Here we read this, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And so Samaria and Jerusalem were the capitals of the northern and the southern kingdoms. And so these prophecies that Micah is getting ready to give are ultimately directed to both Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Most notably, he prophesied about and observed the fall of Israel and Judah to the Assyrians. That's part of what he was, uh, he was speaking to the, the people of Israel all about, is that the Assyrians were coming. And like all prophets, Micah was called by God to confront his people about their sin, to warn them about the results of their sin, and also to remind them at the same time of his grace and of his mercy. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you so much um, for the ability that we have to, to delve into your word and, uh, and even to open up some books that maybe we haven't looked at for a while. And Father, I thank you that every single book that you've placed in the New Testament has the same message, and that's that we wander away from you, we're broken, um, but that you continue to pursue us. And ultimately, our hope is not in our ability or willingness to return to you, but rather our hope is found in your son, Jesus, who came to find us. So, Father, we pray all these things today in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, so, in the late 1800s, the Congo had been colonized by a king from Belgium named Leopold II. And all you need to know about Leopold II was that he was not a very good guy. And uh, here's some of uh, w- the facts that sort of point to that. Uh, over the course of his rule over Congo, he enslaved 10 million Congolese people. And not only that, but the rubber trade was really sort of starting to peak in the late, uh, uh, basically 1800s, as bicycles and cars started to sort of rise in fashion. And so what he did is he enslaved women, and he enslaved men, and he enslaved children in order to work on his rubber plantations. And the way that he sort of kept them in order was he had a group of uh, sort of thugs, and uh, the name of these thugs were the Force Publique. And he would 
King Leopold would supply them with bullets. And he said, anybody who's underperforming must be shot. Anybody who rebels is shot. And he supplied them with these bullets. And he said, for every bullet that you spend, I want either the hand or a foot of one of the slaves to demonstrate that you've obeyed my command. He was a bit of a tyrant. And so, of course, over the years, the people were terrorized, right? And it tore apart the fabric of the Congo. Now, during the midst of the colonization there, uh, there was a man and a wife, uh, John and Alice Harris, who were British missionaries in the Congo. And they loved these Congolese people. They had given their lives to serve them and to take care of them and to preach the gospel to them. And so when they saw these atrocities happening because of uh, King Leopold, they didn't know what to do. But Alice Harris had one option. She had a small Kodak camera called a brownie, for any of you guys that are familiar with uh, Kodak lore or history. And what she said was she said, I realized the one thing that I might be able to do to dissuade the enslavement and the brutal corruption that's going on with Leopold is I might be able to take some photographs of what's going on here and send them back to Britain and back to Europe, and maybe that will begin to get the message across. And so she began taking pictures of uh, men and women who had had their hands and their feet chopped off. She began taking pictures of these various slaves who were chained together. She began taking all these pictures and sending them back home, and little by little the word began to get out about the corruption and uh, the abuse of power of King Leopold. We have a picture here in a second of Alice. Uh, she actually didn't die until 1979 at 100 years of age. And, uh, and so what happened was eventually the word began to trickle across Europe that this was going on. And uh, she and John went home and they began to go to churches and they began to go to town halls and they went to pubs and they went to public places. And everywhere she went, she would bring these photos of the abuse and the tyranny of Leopold. And it went on and it, it established enough of a movement that eventually he began to relinquish his control over the slaves there in Congo. And so it was amazing that the bravery, the courage, the daring of this woman, this missionary, armed with nothing but her camera and a real sense of courage and mission of what God was calling her to do, helped overthrow the tyrannical and corrupt rule in the Congo of Leopold II. Now, often the evils of corrupt leadership come to an end because of the courage of someone who's willing to speak up, to stand up, to speak out. Alice Harris did that in 1898 with her Kodak camera, but Micah did it 2,700 years earlier in Judah and in Israel. The question is, what did Micah speak out about? Well, the first thing we see is he spoke out about corrupt leadership. So I'm going to read Micah 2, and in particular, he, he started off by talking about corrupt civic leaders. He says this, "'Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds.' At morning's light, they carry it out because it is their power or in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. You're the enemy of my people, says the Lord. You rob unsuspecting people out for an evening stroll. You take their coats off their backs like soldiers who plunder the defenseless. You drive the women of my people out of their pleasant homes. You make victims of the children and leave them vulnerable to violence and to vice. So I could quote more verses. Obviously, we have a number of chapters here in Micah. But essentially, what was happening in Israel and in Judah was that corrupt politicians and those people who were in power, they were favoring the wealthy at the expense of the poor. 
They were taking bribes instead of offering impartial justice. And they were taking land that belonged to the poor, which was an act that God had forbidden in the book of Leviticus. All the while, the politicians of Judah and Israel, they were living in luxury because they were getting wealthy off of their corruption, while the underprivileged and the afflicted of the land suffered and were exposed. Now, it would be very easy at this moment to make a leap over into the world of politics. We could talk about Republicans versus Democrats or capitalists versus socialists or even about fascists versus libertarians. But fortunately for you guys, I don't know enough about, know enough about politics to do that. So I'm not going to do it. What I do know something about is how Jesus used his power, right? Philippians chapter 2 tells us how he used his power and his entire ministry was a demonstration of how he used his power. Uh, he says this, in, or Paul tells us this in Philippians chapter 2, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, in other words, he had the most power of any person or being in the universe, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And so the rulers that Micah is speaking to, they're using their power to benefit themselves at the expense of the powerless. Jesus, however, used his power to benefit the powerless at great expense to himself. Jesus used his power to rescue a poor bride and groom from shame at their wedding in Cana. He used his power to heal a nobleman's son. Jesus healed a desperate man who was covered with leprosy. Jesus used his power to heal a man who'd been blind since he was born. Jesus used his power to heal a Roman, an enemy's centurion's servant. Jesus used his power to raise a widow's only son from the dead. Jesus used his power to heed to heal a bleeding woman, to heal a demon-possessed child. He fed the hungry. He healed a man who was deaf and unable to speak. Jesus used his power over and over and over again to benefit the weak, the helpless, and the desperate all at the cost of himself, right? The question is, what do we do with our power? The question is, what do you do with your power that God has entrusted you I can't tell the whole story, but I, I know of a situation here that's happened, come to, come to fruition really in the last week or so, where there are a group of people in our church um, that got together in order to, uh, to help someone who is powerless and to really give them a life that they would have never, this young person, to give that person a life they never would have been able to have apart from these people who used their power in order to serve this young person. I know of any number of different stories throughout the life of Seven Hills Fellowship where people have used their power, where people have used their influence in order to benefit somebody who is weak or powerless. And it's always at the expense of their own comfort and their own security, right? There's always a cost to them. The question for all of us is what do we do with our power, the power that God has entrusted to us? Jesus used his power to benefit the powerless. And so, Micah calls on the carpet. He speaks out against these corrupt civic leaders who are abusing their power. 
but he also speaks out against corrupt religious leaders. That's the second group he speaks out against. Micah 3 says this, beginning in verse 5, this is what the Lord says, as for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. So in the same way that the politicians of Israel and Judah were corrupt, so were their prophets and so were their priests. So basically, instead of honorably and truthfully revealing and reflecting God, the priests and the prophets were greedy and they were self-interested. The result of their corruption was that the people, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, had wandered away from God and the people were becoming corrupt as well. In fact, in chapter 1, Micah reveals some of the people's sins, and again, this is not all of them, but verse 7, he says this, all her idols, idolatry, will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images, since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. And so the people of Israel, the people of Judah, because of the corrupt leadership, have begun to wander away, and they've engaged in idolatry. They've engaged in sexual sin and prostitution. And if we would read the rest of the book, more than that. There's a massive temptation for those of us in spiritual leadership to try to be comfortable, either materially comfortable, like we see here in the book of Micah, or maybe psychologically, emotionally, or relationally comfortable by simply telling people what they want to hear. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that it's my job to truthfully represent God and to reveal what Scripture teaches about Him and how it is that God desires us to live despite or in spite of the cost to me personally or in spite of the cost to Seven Hills Fellowship externally, right? In other words, one of the themes we see in Scripture over and over and over again is that the priests and the prophets become faithless And as a result, the people suffer and their integrity wanes. It's clear to me that what's at stake in this uh, process of me speaking truthfully about who God is and how it is that he wants us to live, that what's at stake is my integrity as a leader, my integrity as a human being. And what's at stake for Seven Hills Fellowship is ultimately submission to the authority of God or instead of that, submission to the authority of culture. In other words, that's what's at stake, is who gets to tell you who you are, who gets to tell you what's true, who gets to tell you what's good and right and worthy, either God or the world. That's what's at stake. And it's clear to me that my fidelity and my integrity and the integrity of our leadership, the leadership of Seven Hills, that if we lead with integrity and honesty and faithfulness, that that will lead not only to the flourishing of Seven Hills Fellowship, but it will lead to your personal flourishing as well. While my infidelity or the infidelity of the leaders of Seven Hills Fellowship would ultimately lead to chaos in your lives personally and corporately as a church. And so Micah rightfully speaks up because God asks him to and tells him what to say. Micah speaks up about corrupt leadership, civic leadership, and religious leadership, because the stakes are really high. 
Now, the next thing that we see Micah doing in the book of Micah is he warns the people about their sin. And so when we talk about sin, we're going to say that sin, to use Keller, is when you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing. Or Augustine, who says that sin is disordered loves, it's when your loves are in the wrong order. Or we're going to say that sin is self-authority versus the authority of God. But ultimately, Micah warns people that their sin will breed chaos. The result will be chaos. And so that's the next point. I'm going to look, uh, start reading in chapter 7, verses 2 through 6. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come, the day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. Do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. So part of what we see, part of what Micah is saying here, part of what God is communicating to us, is that when we are involved in sin that goes unchecked, that it ultimately leads to chaos. And so in my 25, 27 years of ministry, depending on how you um, measure it, but in my 25 years of ministry, I've observed three things about sin, and there's probably more, but sin does three things. One, sin always makes people less human. Okay, just hear that for a second. Sin will always make you less human, right? Less human, not more. And so for those of you guys who are familiar with either the literary work of Pinocchio or the Disney version of Pinocchio, you know the essence of the story is that uh, Geppetto forms this doll out of wood, essentially. And there's a pathway for Pinocchio to either become a real boy or if he disobeys and turns away from his father's guidance and that of the Blue Fairy, what happens to him? We see what happens to him when he engages in sin is he begins to grow long ears and a tail, and he becomes, what, a donkey, less human, not more human. It's actually pretty brilliant to see that part of what is captured in that little story is how sin, again, makes us less human. That's the first thing. The second thing that sin does is ultimately it isolates us. In other words, when we engage in sin, we eventually end up alone. Uh, just watch Breaking Bad, if you have any doubts about that whatsoever. And then finally, what we see is that sin always creates chaos, and that's the point of Micah here. And again, you know, when we think about sin, we think about drug addiction, we think about al- alcoholism, maybe we think about infidelity. You, you know how those things create chaos. There's no doubt about that. But think about how other sort of more subtle sins create chaos. If you refuse to forgive a loved one or a friend or an acquaintance, Just wait and see the chaos that ensues. Have a judgmental attitude towards someone or some group of people and see what happens to your own heart. See what happens in your relationships. Chaos. Engage in gossip or in slander and watch chaos blossom. In the case of Judah and Israel, the unchecked sins of the people and of the civic and religious leaders led to an absence of the righteous and the good people in the land. Instead, the land was filled with people who 
were lying and cheating and stealing and abusing their power. Just think for a moment and think about what that would mean. Some of you have hired somebody before who lied or cheated or stole or was an unfaithful worker, and they took advantage of you. And you can remember, just shut your eyes and think about that for a minute, but you can think about how that impacted you. You probably felt betrayed. You probably felt angry, maybe even a little bit fearful of future interactions. You probably thought, well, I don't, I don't know who I can trust. I can't trust anyone. And that's what was happening in Israel. The absence of, of righteousness, personally, by the way, there is a burden here. <laughs> Randy told me earlier, where's Randy? Somebody. Anyway, the good news is he covered the communion, so just in case, you know, anyway. But yeah, I see the little shadow. There he is. Hey, buddy. Anyway, the absence of righteousness personally or culturally corrupts human relationships, right? Just, you can, you can imagine it. And so here's what Micah says. He says, do not trust a neighbor, right? Can you imagine living next to someone who you just can't trust? Like, are they safe? Are they going to rob my house? Are they going to take advantage of me somehow? Are they going to hurt someone that I love? Don't trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. And so some of you have grown up in very overtly broken relational structures. And you know firsthand the misery and the chaos that results in sin in those structures. You know it all too well. And so Micah reminds the people of Judah and of Israel that that's exactly what their sin will bring upon them if it is left unchecked. It will bring chaos. Nobody wants that. Third thing that we see Micah doing is he not only reveals that sin breeds chaos, but he also reminds them and tells them, warns them that their sin is actually going to be punished. Here's what Micah 1 says. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel and post-division. And he says this, he says, I'll make it a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes as the wages of prostitutes they will again be used. And so there's so much to cover. We could use lots of different verses in here. But suffice it to say that God not only allows the sin of the people and of us, hey buddy, (laughs) but he's also bringing Assyria to judge by conquering Israel and Judah, and for many of the Israelites and the people of Judah to be taken into captivity. We know that that happened. History records that the first deportation occurred around 740 B.C., and the following deportation happened 18 years later in 722 B.C., and the result of the Assyrian conquest and deportation, as you might imagine, had devastating consequences upon Israel and Judah. If you'd been living in Judah or Israel at the time, it would have been completely logical for you to assume that God was done, right? He had had it up to here with, with his people, and he was done, but he wasn't. The last thing that we see here in the book of Micah is that despite the darkness of chaos and the judgment of God, there is hope. So let's read about that hope. He says this, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel, 
I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people, right? I'm not just going to restore you. I'm going to make it even better than it was before. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. There's some conquering king. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. And so what we see in Micah is that although there is sin, although there is corruption, chaos, and even punishment, God also promises that there will be redemption and restoration, and that that redemption and restoration comes through a righteous king who rescues his people and brings peace. Micah speaks of this king in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, and it's actually this very verse that led the wise men to Herod and then to Bethlehem to worship Jesus. Here's what Micah 5 2 says, but you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. In other words, part of what Micah says is this restoration, this healing, this redemption, this mighty king who will break his people out of their bondage and lead them to this new life is Jesus. That's also what Tim Keller says uh, in a book that he wrote that covered, that talked about Mark. I'm going to read this quote from Tim Keller. He says, The book of Mark gives us the story of Jesus and declared that this is actually the world's true story as well. Jesus, the king, created all things in love. He has the power and the beauty to see his vision for the world through to its glorious end, to undo everything that we've been able to do to harm it. To accomplish that, he had to come and die for it. Three days later... He rose again, and one day will come back again to usher in a renewed creation. The gospel is the ultimate story that shows victory coming out of defeat, strength coming out of weakness, life coming out of death, rescue from abandonment. And because it is a true story, it gives us hope. So it's good news, right? Even though there's some bad news, in the book of Micah. It's good news to know that God will bring restoration and redemption, right? It's good to know that that good will triumph in the end. It's good to know that people will beat their swords into plowshares because they don't need to fight wars anymore. But what what about us as individuals? What about those of us who have been unfaithful to God? What about those of us who've been unfaithful to our friends and our family and fellow men and women? What about those of us who are sinners? What about those of us who have been unjust, right? Who haven't used our power to benefit the weak, right? What about uh, those of us who have worshipped the idols of our culture? What about those of us who have used other people, those of us who have not shown mercy, that have not walked humbly with our God? 
The good news is that Micah reminds us about the very nature of God and our hope for us in who he is. Verse, chapter 7, verses 18 through 20 say this. And again, this is the end of the book. After all the judgment, after all the sin, after all the chaos, and Micah ends with good news. He says this, Who is a God like you who pardons sin, right? You're pardoned. And forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. In other words, that debt you owed is gone. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Not only is God no longer angry with you, our God is a God who, listen to this, delights to show mercy. That is good news. Mercy is where we are not given what we actually deserve. And the good news is part of what God is saying about himself through Micah here is he's saying, I'm a God who loves mercy. I love it. You will again have compassion on us, and you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. In other words, there's all the judgment, there's all the chaos, there's all the sin, there's all the corruption, there's all the rebellion, there's all of that's all true. And all of that makes God angry. All of that makes God sad. But the good news is that Micah ends his book by saying, but for those of you who will turn and repent, that all I have for you is mercy and forgiveness. It's good news. So as you look around the room this morning, we have these tables with, with bread and wine on this side of the room and bread and grape juice on that side of the room. And this is a meal that some people call communion. Some people call it the Lord's Supper. But fundamentally what this meal reflects and what it represents is that for those people who trust in Christ alone as their Savior, for those people who have repented of their sins, like Steve had us practice today um, during the service, that when we repent of our sins and we trust in faith in Christ alone, then when God looks at us, all he's got for us is compassion. All he's got for us is forgiveness because he has trampled your sin underfoot. He's thrown it away into the depths of the sea so that when God looks at you, he no longer sees any guilt, right? And so you're able to eat this meal today, to take this bread, to drink this wine, and in it to believe that you are forgiven, to believe that God loves you, to believe that you are at peace with God, not because of your record, but rather because of the record of Jesus on your behalf. I'm going to read the words of institution, and I'm going to ask that you take a moment and you just um, take it as an opportunity to confess of your sins to God, rebellion, abuse of power, sexual sin, idolatry, the list can go on and on. But confess your sins to God knowing that God is a God who delights to show mercy and in this meal, that is exactly what you receive. I'm gonna read the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us a symbol and a sign that points to a reality. And Father, I thank you that um, 
you say that we need to celebrate this symbol and this sign regularly so that we might not forget um, that we are forgiven. Father, I pray that, um, that as we take this bread and we dip it into the wine, that we would remember that our forgiveness is because of the life and the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that as we take this bread and dip it into the wine, uh, that we would hear your voice and that your voice would drown out all other voices and that we would hear your voice say that we are forgiven and that our sins have been thrown into the depths of the sea. And so, Father, you see us now uh, forgiven. You see us as righteous. Father, I pray that as we take this bread and dip it into the wine, that we might even realize that you're inviting us to sit down at the family meal with all of the other saints, all of those who trust in you. And so, Father, I pray today that, uh, that we would receive this offering of mercy and grace from you, Father. It is in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray.